Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Joshua Berta, PhD. He's an assistant professor in the Department of Biomedical Sciences in the Department of Neurology at Cedar sinai And we're going to talk about his research and his work on how cells in the brain regulate their response to injury and disease. So, Josh, thank you for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, tell me a bit about your background, and then I want to ask you about your current work. Yeah, sure, sure. Well, I, I guess I did some undergraduate training over at Michigan State. I actually grew up in Michigan. And after that, pursued a a PhD from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, where most of my training was in the range of molecular neuroscience. A lot of my interest has always been in how the brain and the spinal cord, which is your central nervous system, responds to injury and what these responses mean for things like repair and remodeling of this tissue to allow for people to get better after they have things like traumatic injuries or even in the context of neurological disorders. Um, What what kind of injuries, like concussions or... or Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So certainly uh, things like concussions, traumatic brain injury has, has been a focus. Uh, I would say the majority of my work revolves around the research of spinal cord injury. So uh, spinal cord injury is, uh, is something that about 10,000 people in the U.S. alone have annually. And these, you know, these injuries leave people debilitated basically for the rest of their life. And so there's, there's some hundreds of thousands of people at any given time living with a spinal cord injury. And these can be injuries that are moderate and take away the ability to, to sense and feel things, take away the ability to, of course, move arms and legs with the more severe injuries, you know, really taking away the ability for people to live independent lives. And so a lot of the work that I do looks at the, uh, the, the spinal cord injury and tries to understand how tissue responds and remodels to the, the initial traumatic event and how we might be able to understand how cells and molecules sort of do their thing after an injury in order to be targeted to provide for recovery from from this injury, such that somebody who might be in a wheelchair, for example, with the inability to move their legs, might be able to move their legs again voluntarily and have some independent life given back to them. So if I injure my spine in a certain way, will my cells respond in one way versus me injuring it in another way and my cells responding another way? Or is the response pretty much universal? Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. I, you know, the the injury to the nervous system, I, I would say to the spinal cord specifically, but to the brain or spinal cord more generally, you know, it it sort of depends on the nature and the severity of the injury. And because these tissues, the brain and the spinal cord tissues are so spatially neuroanatomically sort of organized so that certain areas do certain things, depending on where the traumatic event takes place, that's going to dictate the type of disability that the person exhibits. That's certainly the case in, in the spinal cord. And the majority of people that have spinal cord injuries have what are called functionally incomplete injuries. And these are also anatomically incomplete injuries. And what this means is that the spinal cord isn't simply cut across, severing the connectivity between the brain and the body. Instead, what's far more common, and this is in the range of about 80%, if not more, of the injuries that are seen clinically, 
these incomplete injuries are affecting only a part of the spinal cord at, at one level. So that only certain functions like parts of their sensation system, parts of their motor control systems are attenuated or broken. Uh, and, and so because of that, yeah, people have definitely very different types of the, the, the way that they exhibit their disability is very different. And, and that's dictated by, again, sort of where the hit takes place, how severe it is. Yeah, that's, that's a good question. What are the primary methods by which people's spinal cords get injured? You know, it's uh, the, the common running joke is, you know, it's, it's young guys doing stupid things that, that make up majority of these injuries. So these are young guys, you know, doing mountain biking, uh, doing any number of extreme sports activities, and of course, having a fall. But certainly next to that, it's other common things like auto accidents, people doing work, work on a roof and falling off, falling off a ladder, and any number of things where, you know, there, there is some type of fall that can end up fracturing the spinal column, which of course is this, this uh, bony encasement around the super soft spinal cord tissue. And so the common way that the spinal cord gets injured is that the brain, they, the, the bone has some type of fracture and ends up impinging onto the spinal cord tissue. And as a result, the, the axons, which are these long communicating arms of the nerve cells in the brain and the spinal cord, those pathways of communication get severed. And as a result, uh, you know, we, we see the, the loss of neurological function. And again, that could be sensory and or motor function. But yeah, actually, to, to get back to fully answer your, your last question, the ways that the cells and molecules respond to these different types of injuries is definitely different. But again, the, the types of cellular responses is also dictated by the severity and the nature of the injury and, and where it takes place. Is there a window of time in which the right intervention can reduce the, the damage that will happen going forward? Yeah, that's that's a very good question. And, you know, the, a lot of focus, I would say, in the range of the last 80 years or so, if not longer, has really been focused. And, and this is actually the same area of focus that people who study stroke, ischemic injury to the brain or even, even to the spinal cord. The focus in these fields in what I'll call neural injury in general has been to study the lesion site and to try to understand how can we stop the lesion from expanding in order to save nervous system tissue in the area that isn't hit. So actually, let me back up and say that there are basically two or more rather, but I'll, I'll try and simplify it into two major sort of timeframes of nervous system injury. There's the initial hit, the initial traumatic event that damages the tissue underlying the site of the injury. There is no saving that, as you can imagine, that the hit happened, the tissue has been mechanically stressed, and whatever happens there, it, it's, it's gone. Those, those cells die, the tissue is gone. However, over the hours and days or even weeks after the injury, there's a sort of smoldering event, which is referred to as secondary injury. And the secondary injury, not unlike is seen in skin injury and other type of tissue damage, is due in a large part to the process of inflammation. So the central nervous system, the brain and the spinal cord are actually sort of privileged in that the immune system from the periphery doesn't have a huge amount of access. There is some surveillance that goes on by T cells and B cells, but generally speaking, there's a barrier that separates the brain and the spinal cord from the periphery in the normal healthy human like. Like, like you and me. But when a traumatic event occurs, that barrier is broken. That barrier is actually referred to as the blood-brain barrier. So it's a barrier between your circulatory system, where your, a lot of your immune system resides, and the central nervous system. And so in the brain, it's the blood-brain barrier, and the cord, it's the cord-brain barrier. I'm sorry, the cord-blood barrier. 
but so after the injury, that barrier is broken down, the immune system can come in. And generally speaking, the immune response is important and is mostly positive, but it can become sort of dysregulated or rather maladaptive. And as a result, tissue beside the injury area that is otherwise spared from the injury will become affected and, and, and become damaged. Well, that's just the brain, though. What about the cerebral spinal fluid that's pumped out Four by periods. the brain down the spinal cord? There will Four be periods. leaks as well. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And so, you know, our, our systems, our brains and spinal cords in, in our bodies, you know, we've, we've evolved over a tremendously long time frame. And as a result, you can imagine there are cellular and molecular processes uh, involved in, in response to the injury that try to seal those things up as soon as possible. So, so for example, the blood brain barrier, the cord blood barrier actually seals up in just a couple of days after a, even a large, large traumatic event. And the cerebral spinal fluid flow is also sort of capped off to, to stop it from just leaking out in outside of the, the, the brain or, or spinal cord tissue. But, but certainly, you know, the, the, the inflammatory response, um, you know, that's, to, to go back to your question, that's been an area that's been in a large focus for research and for any type of clinical application for treatment of brain or spinal cord trauma with the idea that if we can attenuate or sort of harness or regulate the immune response, we might be able to stop it from becoming maladaptive or dysregulated and stop it from causing a small spinal cord injury to turn into a larger one as a result of this sort of noxious inflammatory response. Um, as a result, a lot of the treatments that are available, or rather most treatments that are available to people with spinal cord injury, SCI or TBI, TBI traumatic brain injury, revolve around the targeting of the immune response. M- meanwhile, you know, that, that's only useful in a, in a very acute time frame because the, the inflammation generally gets tampered down over weeks and, and even just a couple of months. And as a result, you have people that are living with these spinal cord injuries and these chronic spinal cord injured people and traumatic brain injury the same, you know, they, they have mostly functioning nervous systems. Most of the tissue is spared. It's not actually damaged from the injury. It's just that the pathways of communication are cut off. And so a lot of the work that's sort of coming through the pipeline now, and certainly in my laboratory being, being included, are people that are trying to look away from the lesion site, look away from these very acute timeframes and look into spared tissue compartments where a lot of this neuroplasticity is taking place. And the kinds of questions that we ask in my lab are, what are the cells doing in these spared tissue compartments, maybe just beside the lesion site? And how might we be able to harness these populations of spared, functioning, viable cells, harness them into remodeling the nervous system circuitry that allows function to take place, be it motor or sensory? And so what we actually see, and this is seen in brain, brain and spinal cord injury, you know, some, some people do get a bit better. And we're starting to understand through research in various animal models that this functional recovery is actually taking place as a result of neuroplasticity, uh, you know, the, the remodeling of, of nervous system circuitry and the reorganization of the communication pathways often between the brain and the spinal cord that allow people to have sensation come back a bit, have motor function, so they might be able to use their hands or legs just a bit. It's usually not 100%, but anything is better than nothing. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com 
and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership, from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now, back to the show. Would it be possible to put in a stent? You know, whatever version of a stent would work in areas that have been, you know, mechanically crushed so that you can open up the pathway and then possibly the cells would, uh, you know, would go to the right spots and neuroplasticity would be boosted by doing this? Is there any thought of that? By stent, do you mean like a, a, a physical implant that, that nerves could grow along? Yeah, a physical implant that at the very least would provide some physical spacing and room in areas, let's say, that got crushed or impinged. Yeah. You know, is there, with, you know, even if, um, I don't know, I, you know, you might need growth factor to have nerve cells grow into a scaffolding, but at least by providing space, physical space, and an open channel, would that help? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting way to think about it. You know. I, it, it seems from from the work that's been done, and a lot of my work as a postdoctoral fellow at UCLA before I came to Cedars was actually looking at proper regeneration, kind of like you're describing. You know, what does it take to regrow nerve fibers into areas that have been cut off of their input? And certainly, growth factors are part of what's missing, such that if you provide them back into the tissue, into a spinal cord injured uh, model. You can get some regeneration, but you know it's it's important to realize that even if you can get axons to regrow past an injury site, and even if you can allow them or or, or somehow uh, cause them using a therapy to make synapses, which of course are those the the communication junctions between two nerve cells that allow things like voluntary motion to occur, you still need to train the circuits to be involved in what is a very complex process of moving your leg or moving your fingers or moving your hand. And so it seems like goosing regeneration and reconnection is only one small piece of the puzzle. There's a lot of work yet to be done to understand what it takes to drive the formation of functional circuits. And so rather what we try to study in my work is looking into what seems to be a sort of spontaneous repair process whereby spared circuitry, these are connection pathways between the brain and the spinal cord, or even just within the spinal cord that are unaffected by the injury will put out sort of extra little connection processes. So if you have an axon, for example, that isn't cut, it might sprout a new arm into an area that was damaged and provide what's referred to as a detour circuit. So just like the, you know, the, the paramedics or the police might push people off the freeway around a big accident and then back onto an on-ramp around an incident. The brain and the spinal cord seem to be able to do a very similar thing in that if you have an injury in the spinal cord, there's sort of sprouting of new connections from the brain or the brainstem above the site of the injury in the spinal cord, and then new sprouting below the site of the injury. And it seems to allow for brain-spinal cord communication to be reestablished. And so this is way outside of the usual idea that we need to regenerate things across a lesion and make new connections. It seems that our nervous systems have evolved uh, some type of process and the, the mechanisms that regulate this process are not well known, but we, we do have a sort of endogenous repair process that relies on neuroplasticity and in particular, the plasticity of spared circuitry in cells within the brain and spinal cord. And so that's a lot of what we do in my work is trying to understand what are the really fundamental cellular and molecular drivers 
that regulate what I refer to as regenerative plasticity that allow the brain and the spinal cord to reconnect after an incident. And of course, Richard, the idea is that if we can understand the molecular and cellular pathways that regulate this process, we'd be able to harness those therapeutically. We could goose them even more and people that are exhibiting these processes after an injury and seem to be getting better, we can allow them to get even better. Whereas ultimately people that don't seem to be getting better after an injury, we might be able to develop therapeutics that would be able to turn these systems on appropriately. Um, and, and of course, these could then be combined with things that a lot of SCI and TBI patients go through like physical therapy. You know, that's what I think that there's not going to be a, a, a silver bullet, any kind of magic treatment. But I think when it comes to nervous system injury, what we're going to need to understand is what are the appropriate combinatorial treatments? And I think that the harnessing neuroplasticity processes like I'm discussing are going to be a really critical piece of that combinatorial treatment puzzle. I, I'm getting the sense that a lot of this um, would be helped by visualizing how the body begins to repair itself. You know, is there any pattern? And then how can you manipulate the tissue, again, to allow channels for that natural patterning to take effect? Yeah. Is there any, I mean, I, I know you're looking at a molecular level, but what about a visual level? Yeah, yeah. So do you, in visual level, do you mean sort of at the level of the neuroanatomy of where the circuits are? You'd have to look at multiple scales, but a purely visual level to see where nerves are attempting to regrow. Yeah. yeah preferential so, growth along some kind of gradient that you can either see or not see. And then sure. zoom in also to a more cellular level or like a tissue level and seeing what that looks like on that scale. 100%. And, and so most of the work that's been done in understanding how the tissue remodels is using techniques that rely on molecule track tracers, they're called. So these are little sort of uh, for lack of a better term, I'll just call them sort of molecular labels. And these labels can be injected in our nervous system tissue and they get taken up by nerve cells and transported along the axon projections of these nerve cells. And so what you can do is you can actually visualize then by taking tissue out, putting it under a special microscope, you can examine where these tracers go. And as a result, you can see where the axonal projections, where the neural circuitry is, is physically. And as a result, over the past 50, 50 or 60 years, most of the work in the domain of neuroplasticity after an injury has really focused on taking these, these tracers, these, these little markers, and examining, okay, this is what the circuitry in the normal healthy spinal cord looks like. This is where the injury is taking place, and this is what gets hit. And then at various time points after the injury, this is where there seems to be new, new growth occurring. These are where the new connections are taking place. And these are some of the neural neuron populations that seem to be involved in this remodeling. But of course, what we don't know, and, and this is what I'm really interested and in, focused on in my lab, is what are the molecular pathways that are regulating the sort of turning on of these regenerative plasticity processes in these specific neuron populations? And of course, then how do we harness those things? What kind of patterning are you noticing so far, either on the molecular level or again, the physical visible level? Richard, would it be okay if we pause for one second so I can get rid of some of this background noise? Sure. Okay, give me just one second. Hey, Richard, do I have you? Yep, I'm here. Okay, great. Sorry, Cedars is a very busy, loud place this time of day, <laughs> even in my office. Yeah, no, no problem. Um, I don't know if you remember the question, but again, what, so what insights are you getting from, again, looking at the molecular level so far? What, what commonalities yeah. are you seeing in injury repair? And sure. the physical level, are you seeing commonalities in both or neither, or what do you see? You mean similarities in terms of what, in terms of our models to human? In terms of where you see attempted regrowth, if it's successful or if it fails, is there an attempt by the body that's visible? 
yeah, chemically yeah. or visibly, and where does the body seem to be trying to repair itself? Does that give you any information on on where to go? Yeah, yes. point, you know? definitely, definitely. So, so we use uh, we use models of spinal cord injury in the lab, and so a lot of these models, kind of like I was trying to allude to a moment ago, ha- have been really well mapped out in terms of where the plasticity is taking place. And so, there's no doubt that the brain and the spinal cord remodel their connections above and below the injury and that that remodeling is absolutely essential for driving what what's referred to as spontaneous recovery. So this is recovery of sensory motor activity, the ability to sense, the ability to move your arms and legs. That that function seems to come back and it comes back without any therapy in the models that we use in our research. And we use that model to try to understand, all right, if the system can do it on its own, what are the molecular and cellular processes that it's using to trigger that sort of natural repair process with the idea then again, that we might be able to harness those pathways therapeutically when it's not occurring. And so definitely, you know, we, we've, we know where to look. And a lot of the work now is looking into those areas to figure out what's going on. How are the processes turned down? How are they initiated? How are they regulated? How do they evolve over time? And a lot of the focus in my lab is looking at very specific type of cell population that are found within the brain and the spinal cord that are not actually the principal nerve cells. They're not neurons. Instead, they're cells called glia. And these glial cells, and there's a few different types of them. There's astrocytes. There are cells called oligodendrocytes and others called microglia. These are very specialized support cells that are found really tiling all over the brain and the spinal cord. And a lot of my work and expertise is in the range of these, these astrocyte glial cells. And so we try to ask a lot of the questions around neuroplasticity and repair from the perspective of the involvement of the astrocyte. And a lot of my interest in looking at astrocytes in neural regeneration and repair really stems from work that's been done over the last 25 or yeah, maybe yeah, about 25 years that start to uncover major roles for astrocytes in the regulation of how the brain and the spinal cord form in the first place during neurodevelopment. And so it appears that in order for neural circuits to form and for synapses to form and to be functional, um, we, we really, really need astrocytes. And there are very intimate relationships between astrocytes and their neighboring nerve cells that regulate the construction of synapses and the function and regulation of neural circuits. And so it, it was sort of then almost obvious to me when I was a bit younger doing my postdoctoral training that well, if they're involved in constructing the neural circuits in the first place in development, they, they surely must be playing critical roles after an injury. And so a lot of the work that I have started doing in my lab about three years ago when I started at Cedars after my postdoc has been focused on just that, is looking at neural repair, looking at plasticity in the injured spinal cord, and trying to uncover the molecular pathways through which astrocytes contribute to the regulation of this plasticity. One second, Josh. Sure. Okay. Um, I, you know, I, I hate to keep harping on this and I, I apologize. I'm just hoping that it will give you some insight. I don't know if it's there. I'm just looking for something that doesn't exist. When we, when the body is observed trying to go around an obstruction or an impingement, does it appear to only take one path at a time or does it try multiple paths at a time and whichever one works, works? Is there any insight into that or any observation of that? Huh. That's a cool question. I would say that it seems that there is quite a bit of remodeling that's occurring all over the brain and spinal cord in a spinal cord injured person. And so 
I, I think to answer your question, I, I think one would have to be sort of splitting up what what the huh, that's a that's a tough one, Richard. Let me think about this. No problem. Yeah. So as an example, it, it seems that even when just the spinal cord is damaged, the neural circuits in the brain that, for example, are involved in sending out signals to move one's limbs, that circuitry begins to remodel. So this is, mind you, this is in the brain at a very great distance away from the injury site. So there is neuroplasticity occurring post-traumatically after the injury to the spinal cord, and, and it's happening in the brain. And that remodeling is doing something, right? But then in the spinal cord, maybe above the level of the injury, you also have remodeling and reorganization of connections that has a goal that is independent of the remodeling that's happening in the brain. Is this starting to sort of answer what, what, your, what your question is getting at? Well, actually, it might not be independent. There's, well, actually, I guess hmm, the I, main I, connection would be severed or impinged, but there probably is some form, of, you know, some kind of crosstalk back and forth. Like maybe now the, the damaged cells uh, resort to like exosome production that informs the brain somehow. It still gets there. Yeah, for, you know, for sure. There could be all kinds of back and forth. Uh, well, 100%. 100%. I, and I think, you know, a lot of what is actually triggering the initial remodeling seems to have to do with loss of input. So, you know, the, the sensory systems that we, that we have are constantly looking for, uh, the, you know, input from the environment and bringing it back into the spinal cord and then to the brain so that we can sense these things. When that sensation is cut off, that seems to trigger a sort of plasticity. Whereas there's also the remodeling of motor connectivity as well. So I, I, I think that, yeah, it, it, it seems that certainly the, the system is trying to get back to a sort of, I hate to sort of use the term, but I'll, but I'll use it. it, it we, we want to, the tissue wants to get back to a sort of equilibrium state. And so, yes, I, I think that there are probably signals emanating from the injury site, the inflammatory cues that are present in the tissue and that reside there for some time. You know, they, they do have the overall goal of resolving the lesion and then supporting the repair processes. But, but certainly, you know, the, our, our understanding of where things are remodeling points to it being a sort of global phenomena. But again, in terms of what is actually regulating these repair processes, it's, it's basically a, a black box. There is some known about, about what, what circuits are involved in bringing back certain functions. But that's that's sort of where the field is right now. Yeah, I know, you know, brain and spinal cord or brain and injury site normally would communicate. Now, if that communication is cut off or impinged, I wonder if there's backup systems or other methods of communication that may be employed. Like, do you see, I don't even know how you test for this, but do you see coordination of activities of the injury site versus the remodeling in the brain? Can you tell that one is being informed by the other or are both kind of doing their best without information from the other? Is there yeah. a way to tell that? I don't think anybody is really studying it from that angle. I, what I will say is that your, your language sort of brings up the, the idea of biomarkers that are present, for example, in the cerebral spinal fluid or, or even the peripheral circulation, biomarkers of nervous system injury. And, and so this is something that is actually used clinically to understand how severe a patient's injury is, and this could be the brain or spinal cord or both, how severe the injury is and what their likelihood for getting better might be. And so it's interesting to think that these biomarkers, which are actually, some of them are actually proteins that are found in astrocytes that become 
released as a result of tissue being damaged. Some of these biomarkers might not just be coincidentally there because they're leaking out, but they might actually be what I, I think is almost your point. They might be signaling mechanisms that distribute a sort of nervous system injury signal as widely as possible, in, even to the peripheral tissues. And that actually makes good sense to me. And I think, you know, functionally speaking, anatomically speaking, the, the nervous system, the spinal cord most especially, is, has an intimate relationship with pretty much all of your organs. And so you have this autonomic nervous system, right? The part of the body that the fight or flight systems, your spinal cord has a very specific neuron populations that communicate to specific cells in various organ systems, your gastrointestinal system, your liver, your heart, lungs, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's not impossible that the injury to the spinal cord or to the brain would trigger a sort of stress response signal that travels from the injured nervous system out to the periphery and to the organs and triggers some type of, at least puts them on, on notice that there's an issue, if not actually changes their function. Um, yeah, that's, that, that, that's sort of where your, your question led me to start thinking. And I think the, the biomarker space is pretty readily advancing in the brain and spinal cord research area. It's, I would say, most certainly in its infancy. And we, we actually have some really interesting work that's been going on uh, in, in collaboration with the clinical side here, here at Cedars, trying to understand if there are any molecular biomarkers that indicate that the nervous system is undergoing regenerative plasticity and repair and functional recovery or not with the idea that patients who go into rehabilitation might be able to have their treatment schedule modulated sort of on the fly as a result of certain biomarkers being present or not. Um, what about, uh, you know, if someone has a you know, heart attack or an infarction, I know it's different, but do the blood vessels, do, do the repairs or the attempts made by blood vessels look anything like what happens in the spinal cord? Is there any other part of the body with other injury that's more accessible, let's say, or, you know, similar but different that you can learn from and, and kind of figure out what's going on and what kind of coordination is happening? Most definitely. I, you know, this is a, it's a, a fascinating question. And I actually, I, I thought a lot about this some years ago. I, I was involved in writing an article looking at sort of, uh, you know, the fundamentals of wound response in the, in the central nervous system. And it, it occurred to me actually, and this is when I was still a trainee. And so I, so I really didn't know. And so I started looking back. I said, I simply, I just asked the question, can, can we learn anything from the, the tissue injury response literature in other tissues. And so I went in and started looking at something as simple as skin. And it, it blew me away, Richard, when I found these sort of illustrations looking at the wound response phases in skin, and then looking at how I understood things were going on in the injured brain or spinal cord, and there's direct parallels. And I don't mean just in basic cellular responses, but I'm talking individual molecular pathways that turn on to initiate, for example, fibrosis in the skin, those same pathways are being initiated in the injured brain and spinal cord. It was wild. And so definitely there are, there are parallels at multiple levels. Of course, we're talking about very different cell types, but the molecular pathways seem to be conserved, whether you're talking about vascular genesis, to use your example, new vessels that form in response to heart injury use, for example, a lot of signaling pathways in the WINT signaling family, WNT. And it just so happens that those same molecular pathways, the WIND pathways, are involved in regenerative vascular genesis within the injured brain and spinal cord. So definitely, yeah, we, we can learn a lot. And I, this is actually an, an area that a, a, a colleague and I uh, here at Cedars actually were just talking about the other day, the idea that 
you know, with, with the recent advent of these single cell sort of gene sequencing, gene expression sequencing technologies, where we can start to understand very, very high resolution, in-depth characterization of individual cell types. You know, I, I think it's time now to start to use these incredible technologies to make exactly the comparisons that you're talking about right now to really start to understand what are the fundamental parallels across different tissues? And what does it mean when two tissues use very different pathways? What, what can we learn about these differences? You know, and certain tissues certainly have a, a, a far more robust or even complete repair, re, re, repair response. And the, the heart is a very good example of that. The heart can repair pretty well. The, the skin, most certainly, right? Who, who hasn't cut themselves and been sort of wowed when they look back a year later and there's not even a scar, right? It's just, it's, it's incredible. And the brain and spinal cord don't really seem to do that. And so, you know, the fundamental question is, well, why? Why can't neural tissue remodel like that? And so to your question, to your point, you know, might we, we be able to borrow some of the molecular biology and cellular processes that occur in skin and occur in other organs that repair well and create therapeutics to turn on such re restorative processes? And, you know, th these aren't in incredibly new ideas, but I think that They've been very difficult to extensive research on really because of a lack of tools and a lack of high resolution tools. And I think those tools, tools are available now and in, in neural repair and regeneration biology in general, you know, the, the tools that have come out over the past 10 years have absolutely changed the field. The types of questions that people can answer right now, most especially in the context yeah. of stem cell biology and tissue remodeling, you know, it's, it's, it's opening up entirely new worlds of research. What about, um, so downstream from the site of an injury, let's say I have a, you know, God forbid, a spinal cord injury that's somewhat high up and most of my organs are going to be feeding into and out of the spinal column below that site of injury. What happens to them? You know, what yeah. happens to my pancreatic function, my liver function, stomach function, et cetera. They, they still must be communicating, you know, with the brain and the rest of the body, maybe especially the stomach, but what can we learn about this, this, um, this ability to continue to live, even though you had this injury and part of this sensing is cut off. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, this, this goes back to one of your early questions is, you know, basically are, are injuries different and what dictates the type of loss of function that, that one exhibits? And of course, it's sort of the site of the injury and the, the, the severity of, of the injury. So in terms of what organs are affected, spinal cord is set up to communicate with certain organs at different levels, the nerve fibers that that go into and out of the spinal cord and, and are, are communicating with various organ systems are set up from top to bottom. And so depending on where the injury takes place, the organs that lose, for example, lose their input from the spinal cord or from the brain will be dependent on what that anatomical injury pattern is. But certainly there are a, a lot of what are referred to as comorbidities, other, other clinical issues that arise sort of independent or in parallel to the actual spinal cord injury that have to do with the dysregulation or dysfunction of organs as a result of them being cut off from their central nervous system arm of communication. Oftentimes, some of these comorbidities have to do with what's referred to as dysreflexia. And so there are some of these nervous system, these, these circuits between the spinal cord and certain organs where things are occurring in a, in a sort of reflex arc. The organ has some feedback that it puts into the spinal cord and the spinal cord feeds back with some neural activity to modulate the activity of that organ. So you can imagine that if that communication pathway, if that reflex arc is disrupted, some type of traumatic event where the connection is severed, that sort of organ function becomes dysregulated. And as a result, you know, people's ability to even 
control their blood pressure becomes dysregulated. Gut motility is dysregulated. Sexual function is lost completely in, in some patients. And so definitely things like dysreflexia and, and other organ dysfunctions are among the top priorities for a lot of the spinal cord injury research folks, because a lot of what people are with this, with this type of injury want is this, this independent life, right? People don't want to be 50 years old and reliant on other people to take care of them. And so actually walking is not at, at the top of the list. Often it's things that have to do with bringing back the control of their organ systems so that they can live independently. Um, but, you know, in terms of the, the world of neuroplasticity and, and repair, in terms of the research that we're doing, you know, the, a lot of our questions are focused on motor recovery, but certainly the, the circuit remodeling, the plasticity that takes place to drive the functional recovery of motor and sensation systems is very likely to be able to be targeted to, to harness and bring back the function of these, these uh, organ systems as well. And I know it depends on the injury, but yeah. in the world of comorbidities, what unusual ones are observed that aren't obvious? Like do, do people that have spinal cord injuries tend to get cancer, you know, below the injury site in the organs that are most affected? Mm-hmm. You know, do they, do they get other kind of pathologies that, you know, maybe leave your head scratching? You're like, that's, that's odd. Why would that happen? Sure, sure. Well, yeah, the, the ones that come to my mind are actually not not so. I, I think it's it's important to point out the sort of big ones that people suffer from uh, have to do with infections. In, in particular, urinary tract infections are happening all the time. It's especially common in spinal cord injured men. And you know, again, this this revolves in part from the inability to control your 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 bladder voidance, right? So people are often unable to do that. And as a result, you know, the, the urinary tract isn't cleared readily and consistently throughout the day, but instead in, in, in periods. And so, yeah, the, the UTIs are very common. There, there isn't really any literature that I'm aware of, and that has to do with cancer, but let me think, U, UTI is a big one. The, the other issues, other comorbidities, again, have to do with things like dysreflexia between the peripheral organs and because so many of our organs, like the liver, are involved in immune system function, often there is a, a huge amount of immune suppression that results from a spinal cord injury. So I guess that that might be one that's a bit of a head scratcher to somebody who's maybe not who is a scientist, but who isn't in the spinal cord injury research field to learn that the immune system is sort of globally suppressed as a result of a spinal cord injury. That doesn't seem to be a direct connection, but in fact, it's the disruption of the autonomic nervous system. Uh, that, that seems to be driving this dysregulation of the immune system. And you, you can imagine just from a basic understanding of how the immune system works and the importance of it overall in our body, when that becomes dysregulated, that opens up a whole floodgate of other issues, other comorbidities, definitely. So mm. you know, that's, that's where the, the UTI issues certainly stem from. Um, but th- there are other immune issues SCI patients present with. And I would guess that the, uh, the higher up the injury, the more dysfunction and comorbidities appear. Is there a um, is there a sweet spot? Well, probably a bad term, but is there a sweet spot or a spot at which, um, if an injury happens above this spot or below the spot or at this spot, whatever it may be, that you're going to experience like catastrophic problems versus not so bad? Sure, sure. Well, I, I think you know you you definitely hit hit it right in the head. I, I think you know cervical cord is is a scary place. And the closer that you get to the brainstem, and this is because a lot of the nerve, the nerve cells in your brainstem 
are controlling the, the sort of rhythmic breathing patterns that we have. So breathing is part of your autonomic nervous system. It's, it's automatic, right? I, I can tell you to stop breathing, but you can only do that for 30 seconds, right? Because your body's like, nope, we need to breathe. So that, right. autom- that, that automatic process is, is in part controlled um, in, in your brainstem, but also in your cervical cord. And so if you have, if one, if one has a, an injury high up, high up enough and it's severe enough, you know, you, you, that person could die from the spinal cord injury as a result of not being able to control their breathing, certainly. And, and so the, the sort of opposite is true, right? If you have a very low injury and it's not very severe, you know, there are people that have uh, lower thoracic spinal cord injuries that are not so severe. You know, they maybe fell off a ladder or had a small mountain bike uh, fall and they, they get better and exhibit an almost complete recovery. And that's, that's because, you know, the tissue hasn't been completely severed. In fact, a lot of spinal cord injuries are not where the, the nervous system has been cut into, but just impinged, kind of like almost a bruise on the spinal cord. And those spinal cord mm. bruises will initiate an immune response. There will be some swelling. There will be nervous system dysfunction. But, you know, some of these people do get better. So, again, it's, it's, it's an extremely heterogeneous population of, of, of injuries that are seen clinically. But ultimately, most of the research is focused on these sort of more catastrophic injuries where people don't get mm. better as a result of it being, you know, that the tissue gets opened up, the blood brain barrier, the cord blood barrier is, is broken down and the immune system in the periphery comes in. You know, these are, these are far more catastrophic and far more complex injuries that leave the nervous system tissue sort of permanently disfigured. It's, it's interesting to, to, to realize that, you know, the, the nervous system tissue that gets damaged from a spinal cord injury or from a brain injury, once that's mechanically disrupted, you know, there's no nervous system tissue that builds back in its place. And this is, you know, this is in contrast to using skin as the example, you know, if you cut into your skin, there's skin cell division and that skin wound will heal up as long as it's not too big. You know, we're talking for an example, a pretty good sized paper cut heals back beautifully and you have normal skin in its place in the brain or in the spinal cord. When you have a slice into the tissue the underlying tissue, that neural tissue disappears. And in its place is a fibrotic tissue. And that fibrotic tissue is non-neural. And so that's something that, you know, people are thinking more and more about and moving away from trying to therapeutically target the lesion and instead looking into these non-lesion spared tissue compartments to say, okay, let's forget about what was lost and let's focus on what we can do with the stuff that we still have, the circuitry that still exists. How, would, how, how can we tap into it and teach new circuits to form to bring function back? Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's a very cool aspect of, or rather not cool, but very, very interesting aspect of the differences between how our tissues respond to damage. Yeah, I know we got an instant, uh, probably sure. last question, but um, is there, does anyone look for the presence of cerebral spinal fluid below an injury site? And if there's not, what happens? Um, has anyone contemplated a pump where you suck out a little bit of cerebral spinal fluid above and inject it below? to make sure it's continuously supplied if that's cut off. Is anyone looking at that? You know, a, a pump like that, I, I can't say I've ever seen anything like that. Generally speaking, you know, soft tissue imaging modalities like MRI used commonplace after a spinal cord injury to see certainly what the spinal cord tissue looks like. And one of the things that they'll examine for is whether or not the CSF seems to be there underneath the level of the injury. And that can tell us a lot about the, the anatomy of the injury, how severe it is, how, how, uh, how, how much of the spinal cord, meaning lateral to medial, the outside to the sort of center of the spinal cord, how much of that has been impinged upon or cut? In terms of using or, or rather th- therapeutically targeting 
the reintroduction or rather the repair of cerebral spinal fluid flow past the level of the injury, nothing really rings a bell. Uh, so that's definitely a, a good question. I'm sure somebody is working on this, but from my perspective and the work that I do, it's not really in the wheelhouse of questions that people are asking. Why is there cerebral spinal fluid? It must have a very good reason that it's there. And then if the nerve impulses are cut off, perhaps again, the cerebral spinal fluid is being used as a secondary means of communication. Again, there could be tons of exosomes For and sure. other signaling factors in there. Mm-hmm. So I just wonder again, if it's present downstream of the injury site, and if not, if it was put in there periodically by injection or again, a pump, you know, it'd be a tough experiment to do, but yeah. uh, I wonder if that would ameliorate, you know, that would allow more healing than otherwise. For sure. No, it's, it's a super cool idea. Again, not, nothing really rings a bell, but I, I think uh, it's, it's not unlikely that the, the loss of CSF flow would create a problem at the very least in the example you gave, where the problem is simply a lack of communication, right? where there might be factors in the CSF that are being released by the immune system or by the nervous system tissue that are saying, you know, turn these repair systems on very generally. And if those don't get to the tissue, then you don't get the activation of those processes. And so certainly that, that, that could be the case. The, the other side of CSF flow is sort of the, the movement of cellular waste. So the nervous system produces or rather uses a, a ton of energy. And, and as a result, the cells are producing a lot of waste and that waste is needs to go somewhere. And the CSF does take up some of that waste. There is lymphatic drainage in the brain and spinal cord, just like there is in other tissues in our body, but the CSF does, does contain some cellular waste. And so if part of the waste removal system is perturbed or even completely missing, uh, certainly you can imagine a scenario where, well, you know, our, our cities don't look great when the, when the trash isn't getting taken out by the city. Right. And so if you put that, that idea into the tissue, you get a buildup of debris and debris is very inflammatory and you can end up with sort of neuroinflammatory disorder. Again, this is purely hypothetical. I'm not saying this happens at all necessarily, but to, to your question, I think it would definitely be a, a worthwhile area of research. Um, and, and it could very well be going on. It's just not, not in my wheelhouse to know, actually. I expect you to have it all wrapped up by next week. <laughs> yes, I'm on it. I'm on it. Thanks, Rick. <laughs> in the spirit of that, what do you think is possible in the next prison? What do you think is going to take probably a lot longer in order to understand any any breakthroughs that you feel or believe that you're on the cusp of or the, the industry? Yeah, on the sure, cusp of? sure. So I, I think, you know, one, one of the things that, that triggered, uh, I, I think you're, you're reaching out to me uh, for, for this, this great conversation is some work that we're doing to understand how astrocytes respond to the injury. And, and how these responses are, are regulated. And that's important because work that, that I've done over the past decade, um, and certainly work by many others before me, ha- has examined how astrocytes respond to different types of nervous system disorders and injuries. And it seems that they, their responses are highly tuned, highly specific to, to the nature, the severity, the location of the injury, or, or what type of disorder we're talking about, whether it's neuroinflammatory, demyelinating, neurodegenerative, every response the astrocyte exhibits seems to be very specific. And so my question some years ago is how would a single cell type be able to mount so many different types of responses? And so we, we had a, a big study that went on for about, oh, geez, I think it was upwards of six or seven years that just came out in nature a couple of months ago, you know, basically methodologically characterizing how different types of astrocyte responses are regulated at a sort of intracellular molecular regulation level. And so we, we map this out in a very detailed way. And so I, I think it's really exciting now to go into the context of a nervous system injury scenario and say, okay, what, 
what are these astrocyte responses that are going on? How are each of these regulated? And can we go in experimentally and start to modulate these responses by targeting these regulatory programs and to see if there's any therapeutic gain or if it seems to make things worse? Because that's that's where we're at, right? These are still, these are the big fundamental questions that need to be answered before we start to target a cell like an astrocyte therapeutically. We need to know what their responses are and, and how they're regulated. Often therapeutics are, are targeting those pathways. And so, yeah, I, I think that's a very, very exciting area right now. And I think uh, regulation of cell responses as they might be targeted therapeutically, that's that's sort of a, a lot of, that's a, a bread and butter approach, I think for a lot of people across different tissue research areas, but in the nervous system, you know, that's, that's an area that I think is super exciting. And then ultimately, you know, in the context of nervous system injury in general, spinal cord injury specifically, the use of stimulatory devices that introduce electrical activity into neural tissue, whether it's in the spinal cord, at the level of the injury, um, you know, it, it, that seems to be very, very promising. This is work that I'm doing on, on my own. Uh, there are a number of investigators in the spinal cord injury research area that are using these stimulation devices, not only in, in animal models, but now in humans, in humans with SCI, and they're seeing tremendously positive results. Chronically injured patients that haven't had control of their legs or their arms having function come back. And so I, I'm really confident, Richard, that in the time that you and I are still on this planet, you know, we, we're going to see people that would otherwise be in wheelchairs and not be being living independently, uh, having a lot of their independence and function come back. And it, it, again, it's going to be due to a combinatorial treatment. It's not just going to be these sort of stimulation devices, but devices that stimulate in combination with the correct rehab and with the introduction of molecular therapeutics, like my lab's trying to identify and, and target pathways for. Uh, that will goose the system into remodeling and and driving functionally meaningful plasticity. Okay. Well, excellent. Josh, this has been a great call. I really appreciate it. What's the best way for listeners to find out more about you and your work? Where can they go? Uh, definitely. So my lab uh, has a website hosted in the in, in the Cedars-Sinai website. You can check us out there. We also have an independent website at bertalab.io. That's B-U-R-D-A-L-A-B.io. And you can check out who's in the lab, learn a bit about some of our staff, about me if you're interested. And certainly, uh, you know, I, I tell you to go on there and check out some of our work. We try and put publications that we that we put out. Some of them are behind a paywall, but, you know, we try and put them out so that people can read our work. After all, this is a, you know, it's kind of a, a public service, what's going on here, right? It's everybody's tax dollars that are supporting the work that we do. And so we want to make sure that that work is accessible when it's finally published in its final form. Uh, so yeah, please check out our website and we're also on Twitter. You can just look for Joshua Berta and I'm happy to answer questions if people want to PM me. Okay. Excellent. Well, Josh, again, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. That's my pleasure. Take care. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the finding genius podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.